Well, I would imagine that many of you have gone into a meeting or on a date or have even tried to raise your children with great expectation until you find that not what you expected occurred and that everything seemed to get worse and worse, whether that be your own child, no offense to them, or maybe your dating life. I've had hilarious stories that I could write movies about that wouldn't be on the Disney Channel, but everyone laughs about, or maybe you've gone into a situation where you expected to say something to your boss, and then you wound up empty-handed. Well, we're at the point in Exodus where we've climbed and climbed and climbed, and now it's like we're on a roller coaster looking over the edge at the dissension. And what we'll see is that it doesn't seem to go well for Moses, where lace by lace, it's like his life is being untied. And I think we'll see him in a period of great doubt of God's presence, and maybe you would see yourself there as well. And I think we'll see him and others questioning whether we can trust God. And I would imagine many of you are either there now or you have been there at some point in your life. But then what we get to see through this text is the Lord respond to all of those situations and remind his people exactly what he has in store for them. So we pick up in chapter 5 of Exodus where Moses returns to Egypt and is now ready to carry the task of the Lord's work in bringing out his people from the tyrannical powers of Pharaoh in Egypt. But this doesn't seem like how it begins, or at least it shouldn't work out this way. Because in this section, it seems like things get worse for Moses and everyone that he encounters. So let me read to you from Exodus chapter 5. We'll be going through it bit by bit, so I'll just be reading the first 14 verses. Where the Lord says this to us, Afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold, fat, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make the rest of them from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle." Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God and let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had had set over them, were beaten and were asked, 
Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Well, here we see an unforeseen rebuke from Pharaoh to Moses and to Aaron and to everyone in their midst. Here we see sin unraveling. It's not supposed to happen this way. God was going to tell Moses what to say, but, but goodness, things got out of hand really, really fast. This meeting was counterproductive to what many of us might wonder God would do in this situation. What is going on here would not only be our thought, but also we see in the text Moses and Eris' thoughts as well. Moses and Aaron had just performed signs before the Israelites. They did as God said and things looked great. And they were probably walking into this meeting, maybe with a pep in their step, maybe ready to fight the beast, maybe ready to say something. And like a snap of a finger, all of the Israelites were going to be let go from Pharaoh's grip. So they walk in and they say, thus says the Lord. But in this section, Pharaoh is shown to us in the most clear fashion as he has been bit by bit before, where he responds immediately that he just doesn't care who they are or what they're saying or what they're even representing. His response is one of the most harshest rebukes that an anti-Christ figure can be because when he's hearing the words, thus says the Lord, he responds with, who is the Lord? Now, he's not asking this question wondering, like you and I might ask, what is the weather today? How far can this car drive before it runs out of gas? How tall do you have to be to get on a ride? He's asking this question or placing this statement because he doesn't care who this Lord is. He doesn't care what, what figures might come in front of him because unlike Pharaoh's before him, he wasn't scared of these slaves growing in number or growing in stature or growing in the amount of them before him. He wanted to use them. He wanted to place his foot on their neck, if you will, and make sure that they're serving him. So the idea that Moses and Aaron, whoever they might be, are going to come in and say, we've heard from the Lord and you're supposed to let his people go. He's going to respond and say, who's the Lord and they're my people. Pharaoh's response is a picture of what is, I think, the largest anti-God force is so far in scripture. He's atheistic already in that he doesn't care about who God is or what that means for him. He's prideful in the sense that he mocks him. Who is the Lord? He's negligent in ignoring God's word. This word from the Lord goes through his servant and he just doesn't care about it. And he's spiteful in that he hates everything in front of him unless it's serving himself. Exodus at this point is aiming to show that Pharaoh is one who opposes God by aiming to lift up himself. He sees that, that he is the one in control of everything. He doesn't want information. He doesn't want anything but acknowledgement. And things are apparently not working out for Moses because Moses doubles down, if you will. We see in verse 3 where, where Moses asks again the question but states it a little bit differently. Then they say, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go in a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, when Pharaoh hears this, he just assumes and claims that God's people, according to Moses and Aaron, are just lazy. They want to, go, they want to stop what they're doing. They want to stop their work. They want to stop their service so they can go out into the wilderness and have a festival or make sacrifices And he's going, get back to work. 
Now, what I think is so fascinating about this already in the text is, is the way that words are used to pit Pharaoh up against God himself. If you look at verse 9, we have the word work there. And then in verse 11, we also have the word work. And then in verse 6, if you go back up, we have the word slave. And then working in verse 9 and working as servants in verses 15 and 16. And the reason why I point this out is at the root, those words are the same root that we get the word of worship. And so we can look at this and we see that God is wanting to have his people come out of Egypt to rightly and properly worship him. But Pharaoh, maybe unannounced to himself, he's wanting to keep all of his slaves in his camp because he wants them to work or worship him. His kingdom is his most desirable attempt to build everything up around He wants people around him to serve him. He wants fame around him to serve him. He wants questions only asked if they are serving him. And it's pitted already up against who God is. And here's the thing. Both God and Pharaoh think the Israelites should work and should serve. But the issue here for us in just looking at this text is who are they going to serve and worship? In verses 15 and 16, we see that the Israelites have this natural inclination to work or worship Pharaoh's desires. They align themselves with him. They call themselves on his team. And what applying this text would look like to us, even already in this gigantic force of sin, that no matter your situation, you have an opportunity to show who you truly worship. So don't miss this within the text. Whoever you work for, biblically, you have an opportunity to show the aspiration or the adoration of your own heart. That that doesn't even place itself within the context of like a 9 to 5 job or an 8 to 5 job. We have this opportunity in all of our lives, our, our friend life, our family life, our school life, our mom life, our dad life, our child life, our grandparents life. Everywhere we go in every situation we're in, we're given this opportunity to either worship ourselves or man or worship the Lord who has sovereignly put us in that circumstance. You know, think of the last time you failed at something. I mean, you really failed whether people knew it or they didn't know it. You, you study for a test and you just don't know the answers. You try and try and try to serve someone or do something for someone and it just turns out to not work out. Who are you crushed by when someone doesn't reply back immediately or like a post that you put up or don't praise you over minimal tasks or big tasks? You know, you mow the yard and you kind of walk in and you go, hey, you see some straight lines out there? And people go, yeah, looks like the yard was mowed. And you're like, you don't love me at all. (laughs) We have idols all around us and the Lord is showing that worshiping him is better than even captivity of those idols. Even this, when we, when we kind of smash the little hard-heartedness of who Pharaoh is, he, he shows us a little bit more of ourselves and that we, like him, are idolaters or we, like him, have opportunities to either serve ourselves or serve the Lord. And verses 13 and 14 tell us that the foremen, because of this sin, are beaten because of the slavery that Pharaoh is putting over the Egyptians. You know, it's already quite a twist where where Pharaoh is showing himself as terrible and Moses is responding by redoing the request before him. But, But even after that, he's inflicting this pain on thousands and thousands of people 
But then not only is he inflicting pain on those people, but also their own bosses. So the way that this leadership wise would work out is you have Pharaoh and then Pharaoh's foreman and then the Israelites foreman and then the Israelites are slaves. Now you would think leadership wise, Pharaoh would tell his foreman what to do. His foreman would tell their foreman what to do or the Israelites foreman. And then the Israelites foreman would tell the slaves what to do. But instead we see in the text where Pharaoh jumps over his own foreman and he starts beating the Israelites foreman after making sure that all the Israelites are having to do double work in their own point of slavery. Now, this is unimaginable to us because it seems like Pharaoh is doubling down on his evilness. Like, like the idea of sin can't stop itself. And I think what's so incredible about bits and pieces of the scripture here is that people start whining about the new situation that they're in. Now, I don't want to discount the situation that they were really in. You know, the Bible never portrays sin as good. He never, or the Bible never portrays oppressive leaders as good. He never says that you should follow evil in wickedness. But what this sin and sinful situations and slavery situations do is they start pointing people on this endless track of not chasing after righteousness, but always falling into chasing after sinfulness. And only by God's grace does he call people out of slavery. Because here we have slaves who later on they'll show that they would rather stay in slavery than actually leave that slavery encampment because what's next seems a little bit harder. Now this is all incredible to us because we started this story with Moses walking into a room probably pretty hot and probably pretty thinking that he's pretty incredible in the situation and all of a sudden things start rolling out of control. And it's quite a twist. Wouldn't the Israelite foreman expect the Egyptians to beat the slaves rather than the foreman? So let me keep reading in verse 15 and go through verse 21. We see that when the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But... He said, you are idle. You are idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge because you have made us think, or you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, one way to kind of summarize the first point is Pharaoh's unforeseen rebuke is just the idea of sin expanding in the hearts of evil men. Another way to summarize number two is it's it's talking about blame shifters by saying or by describing that the Israelites have an unsurprising rebellion. So number two in your outline, the Israelites have an unsurprising rebellion. Now what's surprising about this is who they start to blame. What's unsurprising about that is that they start rebelling based on their blame. Because of course, if it was Moses' fault and Aaron's fault that they now had to double down in their, in their slavery caused by the sin of Pharaoh, then of course it's Moses and Aaron's fault. But what they're blame shifting is that it was Pharaoh who not only made them slaves in the first place, but is also making their slavery harder. 
Pharaoh repeats his accusation against all of these people by saying you're idle or you're lazy. The reason why you want to go and worship your God is because you don't want to work at all. But his response is is even eviler than just calling them lazy. He's not only made their work harder by providing no straw, but he's also rubbed salt in their wounds by accusing them of being something that they weren't claiming to be or weren't shown to be at all. He shows his true colors, Pharaoh does. Uh, His true colors are not this natural figure who who opposes an enemy in front of him, but his his natural figure is one of sin and evil. Now, many of us might look at this and wonder, where is God in the picture at all? You know, if you're not a Christian, this might be one of your accusations against Christianity or the God of Christianity, where where was he? Why would he allow slavery to take place? Why would he allow evil to happen? Or why would he allow his people to go through this? And what we're told from the scripture is that he's not absent and he's not evil And he's not bad or he's not wrong, but he's sovereign over all of these situations. And and one of the things he's doing is actually carrying people through the circumstance. I don't know if you've ever been to a water park and they have a lazy river. And water parks are kind of gross, but they're also kind of fun because everyone just sits in the same pool. But one of the things they love about a water park is they have a lazy river. Because what do you do in a lazy river? You do nothing. You just sit there and it takes you around. This is not how God's sovereignty works out at all. You know, he's not just throwing you into a pool and just letting it take place. And well, if you wind up over there, you know, watch out when it's the wave time in the giant pool. Get out of the way. Make sure you don't get hit by that. The Bible portrays that God is very active in all of the circumstances of his people. He, he knows all the molecules in your, in your body. He knows every thought in your heart. He knows every situation that you're in. So if you're tempted, non-Christian, to think that this is rightly portraying the the God of the Bible as passive or not active in life, you're you're reading it wrong because of what's about to take place in this. So what we see are the Israelites in this unsurprising rebellion where they are surprised of all the things that are happening, but it's not surprising to see them as rebelling against Moses and Aaron because right after this meeting, we have this, this image or these words written about where the foreman of the slaves go to meet with Pharaoh, and that meeting doesn't go well as well. So the foremen come out of that meeting, and they see Moses and Aaron, and it says they go to them, and they curse them. But, but the language here, don't just read it as they just go to him and say, oh, hey, you must have been listening into our meeting. Hey, we have something to update you on. The language there is that they pounce on them, that they attack them, that they fight. Now they're brushing up against someone because they're, they're looking at Moses and Aaron, and they're blaming them for what is happening. Israel's response is unsurprising when they found someone that they can blame something on. It reminds us of the garden where when Adam found someone that he could blame his sin on, what did he do? He blamed Eve. And when Eve found something that she could blame something on, what did she do? She blamed the serpent. Now they weren't right to rebel or to curse Moses like they did. Often in our lives, things seem unfair and things look pretty oppressive. Certainly some of you are being beat by the system or by the man. It seems like the world actually is against you and we don't want to discount that. Maybe your marriage feels like it's in the tank and you're right to seek counsel in that situation. Maybe you actually do have really difficult kids or a really difficult work situation. You know, one of Brooke and I's friends, uh, they don't live here, so I'm not talking about anyone that you all know, but she seems like she has a really, really bad boss 
who just seems like she hates her. And part of it is like, why do you still work there? Well, because a dollar is a dollar and, and they need to work at this time in their life. And there's this reality where some things are against God's people, but that doesn't mean that God is absent in those situations. You know, the idea that we can walk through something and still trust God is a very normal, repeated theme of the scriptures. Because life is tough. Life often is miserable. Sometimes situations don't go our way. But as Christians, we know that often it gets worse before it gets better. Because Christians, like Moses here, knows what God, or supposedly knows what God is doing. Now, it's hard not to think about Moses' situation here, one who was called to speak truth to power, to speak freedom to slaves, to speak warning to wicked people, and he was still rejected. And if you don't already know, you should know that this was true of Jesus too. Jesus was the anointed son of God to proclaim good news to the poor. He was sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover the sight for the blind and set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as a church, we we respond to this by wanting to know more of what the Lord said. Because in disobeying the Lord's word is what started all this cycle of terror in the first place. Remember Moses and Aaron came in and they said, thus says the Lord. And there are certain situations in our life where we would be right to heed what the Lord has said. You know, oftentimes we don't want to love people that we should. And the Lord says, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Or oftentimes we don't want to provide for people that seem to be around us, but we have a responsibility to family and friends or even the church around us where the Lord's word is clear in many situations in our lives and to disregard it or to disobey it, it always seems to start a cycle of sin in our own lives and more horrifically in other people's lives as well. So we see this unsurprising rebellion of the Israelites And then third, we come to this smaller section in this text where we see Moses' understandable request. This third and highly emotional section begins with Moses seemingly at the end of his rope. He's frustrated. And after both Pharaoh and the Israelites want nothing to do with him, we we would notably understand that. But what we see is him not just asking questions, but we we see Moses to start acting like Frankly, just a big whiny baby. I mean, look at what he says in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord. Now, that's a good thing. There are some things we we should model after Moses. He turned to the Lord and he said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Mm -hmm. Understandable emotion. Not a good question. The Lord isn't the one who imprisoned them in slavery. Why did you ever send me? In verse 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. What Moses is basically saying here is that God is to blame. He's the one making his life harder. He's taking Pharaoh and he's kind of ruining Pharaoh's life. If he had just left Pharaoh or if he had just left Moses alone, everything would have been okay for Moses, right? And it's neat that he was a special servant and that he was going to go in and do these things. And just in the chapter before, he said some things and people responded by bowing their head in worship. But now he's supposed to go in again and say more things. And all of his friends have twice as much work as before. 
Like Adam and Eve in the garden, he passes blame. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. The foreman in our text blamed Moses, and Moses blames God. God's name now means trouble to who Moses is and to what Moses wants to do for himself and maybe even in his own kingdom. Now, man, it feels really awesome getting exactly what we want when we want it, doesn't it? You know, you might, you might think of things like come gift time or come game time or come school time or maybe, maybe you've been aching to take that one class and you fi- it finally opens up just for you or there's that special house on the market that, that seems like God just laid it and plopped it in your hands. That feels great. It makes our Sundays e- easy because it makes us want to come work. Our God is an awesome God, we say, until we start to not feel like he's for us because we misread the circumstances around us, and that causes us to complain to him as the one who's the ruler and reigner over everything in the beginning. God, why did you give me this cancer? It's a good question to ask. God, why did he abandon me? It's a good question to ask. Why does it seem like you're not there? It's a question that seems to be all over our psalms. But in our text, it doesn't seem like Moses is looking for answers. He immediately threw out accusations. There's a famous writer named Thomas Watson who once wrote, Our murmuring is the devil's music. Where there are things that are clear, black and white in scripture. And then there's this gray period where we like to dance because it's something that we feel like we can control. This idea of complaining or murmuring. When we don't get what we want, complaining becomes our refuge. And we should run far away from criticizing God in these moments. We need to be careful not to make the blessings or the achievements of good meetings with Pharaoh or the situations that mirror that in our lives the actual object of our worship. But God be the one who we fully love. Remember what seemed to be the beginning of a battle royale, the beginning of this chapter where where Moses was asking Pharaoh something and Pharaoh wanted the Israelites' worship and God was calling the Israelites out to worship him. We would be careful to not see the situations and the circumstances as the objects of our worship, but rather God himself. Now this idea of asking questions rightly or wondering what God is doing, I hope this allows you to recall the book of Job. The book of Job is, is a wonderful book to read, even though it's difficult, because it's, it's full of emotion that looks like ours. It's full of pain that either looks like yours or someone around you, or, or it even has suffering that takes place that, that we can read it and go, I've been through something like that. I understand why Moses is tearing off his clothes and pouring things over his head. And Job acts really good until his hands from that, that look like their open palms turn to fingers that seem to be accusatory points. And God listens, and God waits, and God's, God hears Job's words, and it's, and it's almost like he's giving Job a good old, you finished yet? You gonna let me talk now? And he, and he just pulls back a small snippet of a curtain of all of the things that he's able to control and all the things that he does control, and he basically shuts it again and says, you can't handle like one millimeter of the size of things that I control on a millisecond level. 
Now, the amazing thing about Job is when we start the book of Job and when we end the book of Job, Job never finds out why God was doing what he was doing for Job. It's one of the things that's both encouraging and discouraging to us. You know, you go through something and you might just realize, I may never know why this happened here. I may never know why I'm suffering like this. But the thing that we can look at Job and now go back into the story of Moses is that Moses wasn't like Job. Moses actually knew what the end was going to be like, and he also knew what some of the steps to get there were like. Moses had it better than Job because God already told Moses what was going to happen. He told Moses that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and then later on he would deliver his own people because of Pharaoh's own hard-heartedness. He never said, you're going to snap your finger and boom, you're out of Egypt. His complaint here, Moses' complaint here is similar to the foreman's complaint to Pharaoh in verse 15. Why did you do this? But here in effect, Moses is calling into question God's character. And we're often quick to do that as well. We let one thing lead to another, lead to another, and then we wonder, are you even there, Lord? And not only do we stop and wait and listen for him to answer us, which the Lord will do in our text, but maybe we start accusing him of certain things because our kingdom has been impacted and our kingdom seems to be out of control. Rather than submitting ourselves to whom the one controls all things. So as life is skidding out of control, Moses speaks like God is actually bringing trouble around him and his friends. He cries out to God and wants to know why he was even sent. He's, he's accusatory or whiny, maybe understandable, but still wrong, our text will portray. Moses should have said nothing. I heard one person say, it's better to be mute than to complain. Because at least you aren't in the wrong place when you speak. It's like you see God, though, wind up in this situation where, where things, in Moses' view, are getting out of hand. And Moses starts asking questions because people are after him. But then Moses starts accusing God of certain situations. And it seems like God is winding up because no one speaks to God like Moses does or like other people do. And God doesn't claim his own name for his own fame. So here, let's look at this last point, the Lord's unmatched redemption. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and I'll go through verse 8. Here we see the Lord's unmatched redemption. And here the Lord at the start of chapter 6 says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to them, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, in verse 5, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, here we encounter this uh, 
somewhat unique text in Exodus where it seems like it, it, it mirrors other parts of Exodus before it and will certainly mirror other parts of Exodus after it. It's almost like little light posts in the dark where you feel like you're trying to find your way through the dark and there's a light post to remind you of what is true and what is real. And you might go on and, and you feel like you're in the darkness and there's another light post to guide you and direct you and to remind you of who God is. Maybe another way to say it is passages like this are, are like the big uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a suspension bridge where there are two things going up that hold the entire bridge together, both the floor and before and after the bridge. Th these statements are kind of like those standards that are holding the bridge together because these are divine summaries where God is responding to his people. And he basically hears Moses is out or hears Moses out and he says, now look what I'm going to do. And he, and he kind of has this outline. So Earlier this week, I just kind of highlighted these three statements. So in verse 2, I am the Lord. That's the beginning. In verse 6, I am the Lord. That's the middle. And then in verse 8, I am the Lord. There at the end. For from the beginning to the middle to the end, the Lord wants to remind Moses that he is the Lord. So in questioning his absence or questioning his goodness or wondering if he's going to do what he said he was going to do, why did you send me? His response is with this great outline of first you need to realize that from the beginning to your current situation to forever, I am the Lord. And then he guides from within that this emphasis where he tells him that he is the Lord like he said, we would read in, verse, or in chapter 3. And then he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see in chapter 3, verse 6. And then he, he also emphasizes that he has heard the complaints of his people like he's done before and like he said he will do again. So by repeating these things, these things that he's already said, he's telling Moses that in all of this, he is who he is. He remembers what he said and he hears his people's words. And that should be enough for the meantime for Moses. Like in the midst of our complaint, sometimes it's just good to be reminded from God that he is the Lord and we're not. And that he remembers what he promises his people, even though we are often forgetful. Or we wonder if he remembers us at all. And then also he tells that he hears his people's words and he hears their cries. So he has this outline of I am the Lord and he emphasizes that he remembers the things that he spoke about earlier, but then he also explains what he's going to do to Moses. Now, it would have been good enough for him to just say, hey, I am the Lord, and that's enough in the meantime. But here he's revealing something new to Moses, and this is really cool. I hope you see it. So in verse 3, he says that he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So now it looks like he's going to make himself more fully known to his people. And then what he does in verses 6 through 8 is he actually tells them what he's going to do for his people in Egypt. Now, verse 3 of chapter 6 seems to be perplexing to a lot of people, and, and it should be. It's one of those where you kind of read it and you go, wait, what did he just say? Did he just say he didn't reveal himself to people beforehand? Well, the idea of the Lord not being the Lord all the way up to this point is, is not true because he did reveal himself as Yahweh to people before Moses. But what he's doing now is he's not giving people a new name, but God's name is now 
being fully or more realized in who he is because what he's going to reveal about himself is something that is unique to Moses because he's talking about how he is their redeemer, not just their Lord or their God, not just El Shaddai, but their redeemer. And he's going to explain how he's going to redeem in the later verses. So the significance of the name is going to be understood at this most crucial time in history where verse 3 tells of God describing the centrality of the redemptive work that's going to be the exodus, where God's people are going to be brought out from this horrible place and into his care. Now look at verse 6, and there's this crucial little nugget that I just talked about a little bit. There's a crucial little nugget. I want you to see it in verse 6, that, that you should, it should make your life all the more sweeter. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now that word redeem, or I will redeem you, one, it's only used in one other place before this text in our scripture. So later on in Genesis. So one, something new is happening here, but he describes this like it's going to happen like an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. Now what it looks like when the Lord describes himself as the redeemer, that the context and the tense of the language is that someone in your family is going to risk everything to save someone else in your family. And that's what it means for the Lord to save his people. That he, that he stoops to the level of those that he loves in order to bring in his family near him. And we see this play out in the New Testament so clearly where, where the Son of God himself comes in flesh and with soul, comes to, comes to our level. You think of how awesome that God is? Like you and I as man or woman, we're not, we're not up to that. We're not up to snuff. Even the angels are better than us. But he stoops to our level and brings in those who are his people. God is revealing himself to his servant Moses as their redeemer. Through the difficulty of his people's work, he's their redeemer. Through the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, he's their redeemer. Through the expanded explanation of his name, he talks about himself now as their redeemer. And he does this by saying he will keep his word in verses 2 through 5 as one who rules over everything in verse 6, and as one who loves his people entirely, even to the point where we see in the New Testament where it costs his son his life. That's how much he loves his people. That's how much he loves those who he's going to redeem. So we see this battle being set up between Pharaoh and the Lord. And at the beginning of this chapter, you might, you might tip the scales more towards Pharaoh, wouldn't you? Like just the sheer power of what he says and what he's able to do. But then when the Lord speaks, all the scales seem to shift towards him. Now, I want to encourage you to look at this text as a whole and to place yourself in the narrative. You know, maybe hold up a mirror as you're reading these words and, and look at yourself as if you were there. See which character you might be like and let that evaluate where you are in life. Now, I doubt many of you would say, I'm kind of like God in this situation. You shouldn't do that. You're not like God in this situation. <laughs> Maybe you're one of those who's in Pharaoh's shoes, though, and you should see yourself rightly. You should see yourself as someone who is prideful and who is only after the, the building up of his own kingdom, even to the point where your actions actually painfully inflict terror on other people. Or, or maybe you go, whoa, 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 I don't enslave people at my house, but do you hear the word of the Lord and seek to obey it? Or do you try to dismiss it and do what you know is best? 
Maybe you're like one of the Israelites or Moses. Maybe you're doubting the goodness of God and his plan. You you don't see him unfolding his redemptive ways in your life or the life of others. Maybe you're the one who grumbles about your circumstances. You know, I convictionally read this passage this week and go, I'm prone to grumble. You know, I don't sing the song, I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to grumble. I'm prone to be quick to think about myself rather than what is God doing. Or maybe you're just trusting, distrusting God's active hand in your life and in his kingdoms. Remind yourself of what is true. You know, if you're in the first camp, one who's like Pharaoh, remind yourself of what is real and who's speaking to you and who has the decision to listen or not listen to you. And in the second camp, remind yourself of what is true and what is right and what is good. To the sinful person, God will defeat you. I don't know if you've ever gone to a gas station and bought a bag of ice. Maybe you have. I hope you have. Parties are fun. You bring ice to parties. How do you break up that big bag of ice? You smash it on the ground. That's what the Lord does to his enemies. It's what the Lord is going to do to Pharaoh. And if you don't check yourself, it's what the Lord will do to you too, sinner. But he's giving you his word in order to remind yourself of who he is and to call you to himself. The redemptive work of bringing people out of slavery and into his good care can be for you. Your heart may be hard like that bag of ice, but let the Lord's word melt it and let him shape you into the likeness of his son. Call out to him as the redeemer of your soul. Maybe you're one of the blame shifters or the grumblers. Let the Lord explain to you what is real. You know, it's so, it's so nice. So my wife is like the nicest person in the world. She's not here, so everyone tell her I said that. My wife's the nicest person in the world. So whenever I'm like, the sky is falling, she's like, well, first of all, let's go outside. Is it falling? No, that's impossible. Two, what does the Lord say in his word? You know, him, he who began a good work in you is going to see it to completion. Those people that you might feel bad about, don't worry about that. You know, so allow yourself to be led by the word and let the Lord explain to you so that you're not caught up in blame shifting or you're not caught up in complaining. If you're in Christ, though, you gotta be encouraged by this text because the promises that the Lord has laid out were completely fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus, the very Son of God. When we think of all the things that that Moses writes down that God told him in verses two through eight of Exodus six, we would be good to look forward into the New Testament and be reminded that it's Jesus who brings us out from under our burdens. It's Jesus who delivers us from the slavery of our sin. It's Jesus who redeems us with an outstretched arm and with acts of judgment. It's Jesus who takes us as his people and it's Jesus who claims to be and is and is right now our God and, bring, and promises to bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. And he does this by his grace and his mercy, not in our works or by our fear. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord and makes himself known to the world as the redeemer and his work on the cross is how we can see him as the redeemer. We're reminded of what was written about in Isaiah 53 where where Jesus was prophesied about because we can see him as the redeemer because he was despised and rejected by men. He bore our griefs. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us are like sheep and have gone astray. And we have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. 
He was afflicted. He was taken away. But through his work, he redeemed us. Jesus is the true and better Moses, but Jesus also is the fulfillment of God's comforting care that he gave to the people that Moses was over. You see, it was Jesus who removes our guilt and removes God's wrath and, and dies as our substitute on the cross. And so the call to all of us is either if you are far away to believe in this Jesus and he allows you to do so, and if you consider yourself a Christian and you come in this morning and you don't know if you can trust God, continue to trust in the one who promised to deliver you from slavery's bondage to freedom's rest. Who did deliver you on the account of the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Who commits to keeping you safe, full of joy, and finally at peace forever and ever. Our God, he says in this statement, remembers his people promises to bring his people to him and remembers and will fulfill his covenant. And so we can trust in him this morning and with the rest of our lives. We can look at Exodus 5 and 6 and be reminded that he is the God who we can place our whole lives in. Philippians 1 verse 6 says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see later on that the Lord will continue to speak to Moses and, and he'll tell Moses, go now to the Israelites and say these things. And the Israelites will continue to reject what the Lord says and, and the Lord will tell Moses to go to Pharaoh again and, and Moses will go, how are they gonna listen? How's he gonna listen to me? My own friends won't even listen to me. But the Lord tells him to continue to do this work. It says in verse 13, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So our text this morning draws a line in the sand between the Lord and what appears to be the harshest king and the most powerful king in the world at that time. And through this, we see men being brought low, but, Lord, but the Lord ultimately being shown as where he is. He's not being lifted high. He's being presented as high and mighty and majestic and perfect. We see the Lord as one who is committed and accountable to his covenant. We see the Lord ruling and owning all the things of the world. And we see the Lord, that he will show what he knows to be his, that these slaves will soon become sons by his work, even at the cost of Pharaoh's sin. So in today's passage, we are faced with the reality that when evil is at its highest and when we feel like we are at our lowest, it is God then who can be God. And through this and in all time, it may look like we have little, but the Lord presents himself as Yahweh, the Redeemer, our Lord forever and ever. Go with this hope. Trust with this hope. See him with this reality. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning amazed at your goodness in speaking to us through this story. We're amazed that we often would find ourselves like people within it. And we thank you for the example that they have set for us. We pray that we would be driven towards seeing you as you are. Lord, often we pray, remind us of your cross and remind us of your empty grave. Lord, call us to yourselves. Keep us in your care. And may we exalt you and praise you for the one who remembers us, who hears us, and who delivers us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.